So we're going to, uh, we're going to take communion in a few minutes. And um, I, I realize that since we've been in this time of, of COVID, we've been doing these little communion cups, these uh, fellowship cups. Um, and, and, and one day uh, we, we will be back to, to coming forward for communion the way that we've always done it. Uh, but I just know that these things can be a little bit of a trick. So I just wanted to give you a heads up that we are going to do communion today. If you haven't gotten a, a cup, you can get one in the back. Um, and it's probably helpful. There's a little, uh, a little bit of plastic that's on the top that you can kind of take off and prepare you know, uh, maybe throughout the sermon to try to get your wafer out before. It's, uh, it's a little bit tricky sometimes, and, and sometimes it, get, it catches us off guard when we're in that moment of communion. So before, uh, before we get there with it, you can feel free to, to play around with that. So good morning for, to everyone. Um, for the benefit of guests, my name is Joe Miller, um, and uh, I'm just uh, delighted to be here uh, sharing with you, continuing this book of Daniel. And I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 7. If you uh, have a Bible with you, that's great. There's Bibles in the pews, there's Bibles in the back, and if you have your phone, you can go to BibleGateway.org and you can pull up. We'll be preaching from the, from the ESV is, the, is what I preach from. So we're going to get to Daniel 7 in a bit, um, but you also might put a finger in Mark chapter 2. Uh, Daniel 7 is one of those especially important chapters of the Bible. If you're not already convinced of that, I, I hope that you will be by the, by the end of our time today. Um, it's at least one of the most important chapters of the Old Testament for no other reason than it was constantly quoted by Jesus. Like if Jesus walked around to you and he was constantly quoting like a song, you'd be like, I should probably go listen to that song, right? Well, Daniel 7 is like a song that Jesus has constantly quoted. It was always on his lips. If we were to read the, if, if we were to read the New Testament, what do you think is the most commonly, word, uh, commonly used word or term uh, used to describe Jesus? Messiah or Christ? Um, if you were to look at the, the second most commonly used word to describe Jesus, it, it would probably be Lord. And if you were to look at the third, a distant third, but it's used about 82 times, is the term son of man, which basically just means human being. Some have pointed out that, that as much as we should, and, and it's rightfully so, that we talk about how Jesus was and is divine, God made man, it must also be said that he was a human being. He was the, the truly human one. He came to show us what humanity is supposed to look like. So what makes this term, son of man, really significant, though, is that the term, it is the term most often used by Jesus to describe himself. Jesus was and is the Christ. Jesus was and is the Messiah. Jesus was and is Lord. But again and again and again, when he referred to himself, he used the phrase, son of man. When Jesus uses that phrase, he's quoting Daniel 7. Quick example, Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, this is, a, this is an episode that's early in Jesus' ministry. We, we talk about it all the time in the church. This is a, an episode where Jesus is teaching a large crowd gathered together in a home, actually maybe his home or where he was staying. And the place is so crowded that no one can get in and out of the room. But here's this group of, of, of people who are trying to get in to see Jesus, uh, but, but they can't get in, but they've, they've brought 
a friend with them, a friend who is paralyzed. And, and this group of people, maybe four other people, four other guys or somebody, they're carrying this paralyzed man on, on this, this, this mat of some sort, this, this, this like bed of some sort. Um, so Jesus has been healing other people, and, he's, um, and, and this committed group of people believe that Jesus can heal their friend. So, so you know what they did. They, they couldn't get in the front door, so they figured out a way to climb up on the roof, and they, and they tied a rope. They like fashioned a rope to this man's bed and lowered the bed down to where Jesus was teaching, like right in front of him. And Jesus, of course, is like amazed. He's like, wow, guys, you have so much faith that you would go through all this, you know, to, to, to get me to see your friend. And Jesus is amazed, and he looks at this paralyzed man, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's a funny thing to say. I mean, it's one thing for a healer to heal people, but forgiving sins, that's, that's God's business, isn't it? So the religious leaders who are there kind of watching all of this, they start to grumble. And Jesus says this, he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? I mean, guys, what's easier? For me to tell this guy that his sins are forgiven, or for me to actually put myself on the spot and tell him to get up and walk out of here. And here it is. But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which was always the bigger problem. I say to you, paralyzed man, rise. Get up, pick up your bed, and walk out of here. Go home. And immediately he did just that. This paralyzed man who had been brought in by, by his friends, been lowered down, he'd brought in by his friends, he, he gets up at the healing words of Jesus. And he's healed. And um, so what is, what is Jesus doing? He is tying his, his authority to heal. Healing in all its facets. Physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, social. Five facets of healing. He is tying all of that to this term, son of man. And this word son of man is a loaded term and it comes from Daniel 7. So you can turn with me there if you would. We are continuing this morning in our series, Bridges to Babylon, where we're looking at the book of Daniel. And at its most basic level, the book of Daniel is a story of a group of Jewish exiles who have been taken from their home in Jerusalem in the 6th century BC and brought to live and work in Babylon, which was the superpower of the day, the Babylonian Empire. So there's a big theme of the book of Daniel, and that big theme is what does it look like for a minority of God's people, a small group of God's people, to be faithful to God in a culture that seems to be moving in the opposite direction? You might see why I thought this book would be a good one for us to study now. Now the first six chapters of Daniel contain what we might call hero stories. They are, for the most part, simple stories that give us examples of what it looks like to be faithful in exile. In all six chapters, you notice kind of a cycle, right? In all six chapters, we saw a king, either Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, or Darius, attempt to exercise some sort of reckless, irresponsible behavior, irresponsible power, only to give an opportunity for Daniel and his friends to show faithfulness to God in the face of opposition, or in the face of persecution. And in each instance, 
there was like a level of respect given to the king that we might not have respected, not, not, might not have expected. Not only a level of respect given not only to God, but to these Babylonians and specifically their king. And, and we might not have expected that. We might have wanted them to thumb their nose to the king. We might, have been, we might have expected them to constantly be yelling death to tyrants. But what strikes me about the first six chapters of Daniel is that they are constantly looking for ways to respect the king, even, even in the midst of their faithfulness to God. And in each instance, the king is also ends up acknowledging on at least some level a level of respect towards Israel's God. So last week, Drew Bennett preached on Daniel 6, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. What struck me about that passage was, was the clear warmth that evidently existed between king and the, da- king, the king and, and Daniel. And, and you might say, like, warmth? Like, are you kidding me? He, he threw him into the lion's den. You know? But yes, he did. But didn't you notice, like, throughout the passage, like, again and again and again, how much it killed the king to do it? I mean, while Daniel was in the pit, the king spent the night fasting, pacing his room in a sleepless night. And the next morning, the king yells into the cave, hey, Daniel, expecting Daniel to answer. He expected the diet lions not to rip him apart. Evidently, he calls Daniel a servant of the living God and says several times throughout the chapter that he calls Daniel, he says that Daniel serves God continually. Clearly, this story is meant to inspire faithfulness in God's people and and trust in the one true God. But it is because of Daniel's trust in God that he felt free to establish somewhat of a warm relationship with the king. What's the worst you could do? Kill me? I serve a greater cause. You see, the book of Daniel is indeed about faithfulness in exile, but it is about so much more than that. It is about how God's people are called to be a blessing no matter where they find themselves. So the truth is, friends, the the first six um, chapters of the book of Daniel are the easy part. The second half of Daniel, which we'll get into a minute, is not filled with stories that would make good VeggieTale episodes. They are filled mostly with apocalyptic visions of prophecy. In many ways, these visions were written to God's people to give them a heads up about the future, but it's important to remember that that prophecy in the Bible doesn't always just fit nicely and equate with prediction. In fact, I think that most of the time what prophecy is, is prophecy is revelation, which is often symbolic, that tells us about how things are, not just how things are going to be. I hope that'll make more sense as we look at Daniel 7. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, please please consider bringing it up. We'll start in Daniel 7, uh, we'll start in verse 1. In the first year, Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, now if you remember, Belshazzar died back in chapter 5, so this is a flashback, or this is is referencing something that happened before. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream, and visions of his head as he lie in his bed. You ever have a bad dream? Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declares, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. 
Then I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the, man, the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, was like a bear. It, ra- it was raised up on one side, and it had ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings on its, uh, on its back, uh, the wigs of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, a four-headed leopard, and, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all those other beasts that came before it, and it had ten horns. And I I was looking at the horns, I considered the horns, and and behold, there came among them like another horn, this one like particular horn, a little one, um, before which three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And behold, this this new horn um, had like eyes, like the eyes of a man, and then this horn had a mouth, and it was speaking these arrogant things. So that really speaks for itself, right? You know, that, I mean, really, we don't need any sermon application after that. That, that you, know, you know, pretty clear what's going on. No, no, this is heavily symbolic language. It would have been symbolic in Daniel's time. It would have been symbolic in Jesus' time. It's symbolic in our time. So what's it symbolizing? First of all, these beasts are coming out of the sea. Now, to the Hebrews, what does the sea represent? Chaos. Rebellion against God. The beasts come out of the chaos, and what are they doing? They're devouring flesh, and they're exercising dominion, and they're speaking arrogantly. You get yourself a good study Bible, and you can spend time looking at the specific details of like each monster there. We're not going to spend time doing that today. But, but as Daniel is going to find out in a few minutes... These beasts, at least in the, in, in the step one, is that these beasts represent earthly kings or earthly empires. Earthly kings with far more power than is good for them. The, the monsters are, 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 these monsters like, are, are just like the monster that tore them from Jerusalem and drove them into exile. So Daniel knows what it's like to work for a monster. Remember the writer told us that, that Daniel saw these visions in the first year of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, So that means that Daniel would have had these visions right after Nebuchadnezzar had died. Nebuchadnezzar was the king who was driven into the wilderness, humbled by God, by God turning him into a beast. If the first beast, the lion who was made to stand on his feet like a man and think like a man and kind of be humbled, as we get from the, the language of that first beast, this first lion probably represents Nebuchadnezzar himself. And the empire of Babylon, the lesson that Daniel is learning is that the cycle of history is that, um, is that, 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 that it often leads to more devastation, even after it looks that, like things have been getting better for a little while. Sometimes things do get better for a while, and then they get bad again. That's just how human sovereignty tends to go. It looks like for a moment that the, that the lion is starting to get into his right mind, and then, bam... Here comes this bear, ready to rise and devour flesh. 
And then comes two more beasts, the fourth of which we're told is terrifying, so terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong that it has great iron teeth to destroy and and horns symbolizing intoxicating power and strength. So if you think that this is only about ancient empires and kings, think again. Anytime humans possess any sort of leadership authority or power, what it does is it leads us vulnerable to pride, taking over And we become beasts rather than fellow human beings. We seek to devour each other, like Paul says in Galatians, rather than than being human beings toward each other. We see it with kings. We see it in politics. We see it in businesses. We see it in families. And we see it, God help us, in churches. But but then what happens? Daniel 7, uh, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed... And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream, a river of fire, issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand, a multitude of the heavenly hosts stood before him. And the court, this throne is also a court sat in judgment, and the books were open. And I looked then, because of the sound of the great words, the horn was speaking, this arrogant horn was speaking, and I looked, and and that beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Ancient of days. The ancient of days is a term used to describe God. God is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. God has his arms around all of existence. And now Daniel sees a vision, not only of the throne room, but with with the multitude of the heavenly hosts standing before him, but also the court which sits in judgment of the beastly empires that Daniel had just seen. And here's the thing about this judgment. The thing about this court, the books, the books were told were open. Nothing, nothing was hidden. Whatever the empire is, God sees it. Exa- whatever the empire is, God sees it exactly as it is, the good and the bad. I and mean, have you ever thought about that personally, from a personal standpoint, that that God sees you exactly as you are? Nothing, nothing about you is hidden from God. I mean, here's what I know about you because I know it about me. A, there are things about yourself that you let the world see. B, there are things that you wish, the things about yourself that you wish the world didn't see. C, there are things that you attempt to hide from the world. Sometimes you're successful, sometimes you're not. And then fourth, there are things that you are ignorant to. There are things about ourselves that not even we realize because we're blinded to them. But to the Ancient of Days, the one who opens the books and sits in judgment, nothing is hidden. We are exposed when it comes to God. There is nothing that is hidden from Him. We are so good at lying to ourselves, but we cannot lie to God. God hears those arrogant words that the horn is speaking, but He is not fooled. That make, make you kind of cringe in your seat that God sees all of your sins exactly as they are. But in a moment, 
we are going to see that, that, what actually, that this is actually very, very good news. It is very good news that God sees your sin in all of its manifestation in precise detail. Because the truth is you wouldn't want it any other way. And here is why. Picking back up in verse 13. This is Daniel still in his vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, as I said at the beginning, the term son of man, it's a loaded term that Jesus often uses to refer to himself. And so when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's quoting that. But before we go there, let's just sit with what this passage is saying to folks before Jesus arrived on the scene. So hang with me here. I I, I know this is heavy stuff for like a Sunday sermon. I, I bring it up because I believe it matters. But here in verse 13, we hear that one like a son of man is going to approach the Ancient of Days. A human person, a dude, is going to not only enter the presence of God but evidently be handed dominion for an everlasting kingdom, one that will never be destroyed. I mean, remember, we've just spent the past six chapters of Daniel talking about all the things that can go wrong when human kings attempt to build empire. And now Daniel is getting a vision of a human king being handed an everlasting kingdom by God himself. This must be one heck of a guy. Still, I mean, this isn't unexpected, right? I mean, wasn't there another character in the Bible, a king no less, who was promised that one of his descendants would be given an everlasting kingdom? David. If you remember, David was about as good as a king as Israel was ever going to get. But he was a long way from perfect. David, by his own devices, would have no business standing before the throne of God like the Son of Man is approaching the ancient of days and be given eternal dominion. No, but, but remember, God sees all. Nothing gets past him. So the only way that this son of man gets handed power, the kind of power that God's talking about here, is if he is worthy to receive it. And the stakes get even higher than that. Back Back to Daniel, picking up in verse 15. After he sees this vision, Daniel says, As for me, my spirit within me was anxious, and my visions in my head alarmed me. I don't blame you, Daniel. So, so in the dream, still in the dream, he, he goes up to this guy, somebody standing close to him, probably an angel, who was also watching all of this, and he goes, Wow, hey, um, this, this is all, the beasts and the, and the throne and the ancient of days, and all, this, this is pretty heavy stuff. Um, what are, what are we looking at? And the guy says, well, you probably figured out that the beasts represent earthly kings. But then he says, verse 18, but the saints of the Most High 
shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. The saints are the most high. I thought the kingdom was going to be given to the son of man guy. What's the connection between him and the holy people of God? It's as if this son of man is going to be like a, a representative of the holy ones of the most high God. But evidently, that actually isn't the thing that bothered Daniel. Dan, Daniel asks a different question. He says, um, you know, what, 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 what about this uh, fourth beast? That one, uh, the one with the iron teeth and the claws and the bronze and the horn that had the mouth that could speak, that, that, that seemed pretty scary. Can we talk about that for a sec? Now, it's interesting that Daniel would be preoccupied with the fourth beast because one of the things he saw back in verse 11 was that that beast was destroyed in the court of the Ancient of Days. The other beasts will be alive for a while, but that fourth beast, he's going to be defeated before the others. And Daniel saw this, but, but listen to what else he saw. Verse 21. As I looked, the horn, not necessarily the fourth beast, but the horn, the horn that's spewing his lies, made war with the saints of the Most High and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came in and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. So, so that, might, that might seem a little confusing, right? You're, you're, what you're saying is that the fourth beast is going to be terrifying and it's going to destroy. It's going to wage war on the people of God. It's going to win. It's going to seem like it's going to prevail over them. And it's going to seem like all hope is lost. But, but, but when that happens... It's actually going to be the destruction of the beast? I mean, for Daniel, this might not have made sense. How, how is it possible that a terrifying beast, an evil empire, is going to be destroyed by killing a holy person? Are the connections starting to get made here? I hope the connections are. Jesus arrives on the scene about 500 years after the time of Daniel, he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. He constantly refers to himself as the son of man and then starts a movement of followers called his ecclesia, a gathering, an assembly of the saints that come to be known as the church. He tells them that this church will be built on the rock of Peter's confession that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. So, so what is Jesus doing? He's emphasizing his humanity by calling himself the son of man. He's emphasizing his divinity. And then he's gathering the saints of the Most High into himself. And then what does he do? He goes to the cross as Israel's representative Messiah. And he dies for the sins of humanity, making it look like a time, for a time, making it look like the beast had won. But in reality, the cross wasn't a defeat. It was a victory. It was a victory over the beast. It was a victory over sin and death and evil. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. You got to turn there. Just, just an incredible passage from Paul. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Go Eat Popcorn, Gas and Electric Power Company. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, guys, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or exploited. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant 
being born in the likeness of man. Being born in the likeness of the Son of Man. And being found in human form, being found as the Son of Man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Daniel 7, why was the Son of Man worthy to approach the Ancient of Days and receive glory and dominion and authority of an everlasting kingdom because of the cross? How do average people like you and me become the saints of the Most High God? Through the cross. You see, Israel wasn't plan A and Jesus plan B. No, it was always about Jesus. Read a history book. The church has always been at its worst when it was helping build prideful empires. There's no denying that, and frankly, we need to confess it more often. But the church was always at its best when it was engaged in sacrificial love modeled by our Messiah, our King, because Jesus became what we are so that we could become what He is. Let me say that again. Jesus became what we are so that we could become what He is. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. There's a lot of connections, obviously, between the the book of Daniel and this apocalyptic uh, vision and revelation, which in some ways I guess you could say is like the, the New Testament counterpart to the book of Daniel. Revelation 1, starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is John the Revelator. I turned to speak, uh, to see the voice that was speaking to me, and, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, uh, Lampstands uh, symbolizing illumination. I'm seeing things for how they really are. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That sounds an awful lot like the Ancient of Days language from Daniel 7. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters in his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his faith was like his face was like the sun shining in its full strength and when i saw him i fell on my feet i fell on my feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me and he said fear not i am the first and the last, and the living one, the resurrected Christ, I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. One more. Back up to Acts 7. We read through, we read through Acts you know, earlier this year, and T.D. Allen was with us, and he talked to us about the story of Stephen, the martyr. You might remember that. In Acts 7, a short time after Jesus had departed and given the mission of God over to the saints of the Most High. You know, that's, that's the mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. The thing that, 
that Brian was talking about before. He gives this mission over to the saints of the Most High, and, and we see this, this figure, Stephen, in the early church. He gives this incredible speech laying out how God's plan was always pointed towards Jesus. But these religious leaders, they didn't want to hear it, right? And they began to get enraged, just like it happened back in Mark 2. They get, they get upset because it seems like Jesus is, is and, uh, the, the, Stephen and, and this Jesus is questioning their authority, right? And they start to grind their teeth, but then we're told that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. He like, sees like, maybe kind of this throne room that Daniel saw. And what does he see? He sees Dan, uh, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And this is what uh, it says in Acts. This is the quote. He says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now then they stoned him. They killed him. They killed Stephen. But what did Jesus, or what did Stephen see right before they stoned him? He saw a vision of Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. You ever, you ever watch a courtroom drama? Who stands up in a courtroom? Not the judge, not the defendant, the lawyer, the advocate, one standing in the defense of the, of the, of the accused. No, now Satan, Satan, the word Satan means the accuser, and, and the truth is that, that he's quite accurate in his accusation. We are indeed sinful, and by our own merit we deserve death. But Jesus, our advocate, because of his worthy sacrifice on the cross, because he paid the price stands in our defense and advocates for us before the judge, the Ancient of Days. When we were created by the Ancient of Days, we were given dominion over creation. And in our sin, we gave up that dominion and instead followed the way of sin. But, but in Christ, we are invited to once again pick back up that dominion and be the people, be the leaders, be the saints of the Most High again the ones that God will use to build for his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want us to think about this. I want us to think that, the, that one of the benefits of scary visions like these beasts and stuff, one of the benefits of these scary visions is that they actually don't have to mean just one thing. Hebrew text to study the scriptures like a rabbi would 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 be somebody who wanted to wrestle with the text in the many different facets and thinking about the many different ways that we can interpret interpret this so like the angel said to david the, the peace the beasts clearly represent earthly empire the prideful kings these kings who have allowed pride to infect their hearts but but the truth is as we come to to communion the truth is the beast is in me. It's a selfish beast that has destructive desires. Sex, power, and money, these aren't evil things in and of themselves. But when I selfishly define how to go about getting them, it looks, it looks like I'm the beast. Rather than looking to God and for his best on how I might go about things like sex, power, money, family, all that. I follow the way of the beast when I don't follow the way of God. So is the beast Babylon? 
Is the beast Syria? Is the beast Greece? Is the beast Rome? Yes, 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 and yes. Is the beast Satan? Yeah. But the truth is that God is sovereign over all of that. In a world, in this world, you will face trials by the hands of these prideful empires. It's going to happen. The truth is that's not your main concern. They might kill you. But when you stand before the judgment throne of the Ancient of Days, the only beast that we need to be concerned with is the beast in us. Just as no one else can give God your praises but you, you will be judged by, for no one else's sins but your own. And here's the thing, like I mentioned before, that judgment, it will be precise. It will be perfect. God is entirely trustworthy. He will identify everything about us that stands in opposition to his holiness and we will share in his resurrection and be made new. But that is not because of our own righteous work. It is because of the righteous and altogether holy work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no other name, friends, under heaven by which we might be saved than the name of Jesus. He is Lord. He is King. The question for us this morning is, are you living like that? Are you living like he's the king? Have you surrendered over your control to the only one who is actually worthy of sovereignty? And in this communion, this mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, this meal that Jesus gave us is a reminder of what it looks like when God is in power. Where is God glorified? He is glorified when his people come together in unity and freedom and equality and remember the sacrifice that he made to unite all things back to himself. 